Hi, and welcome to Just a GP. Today you're here with Rebecca and Ash, and our special guest is Dr. Rita McMurrow, and she's going to talk to us about the ERC group and the APC and explain all of those acronyms to us. But I thought we'd start off today with, as we always do, our highlight of the week. So, Ash, what has your highlight been this week? On Wednesday, I turned up to my practice and they said, what are you doing here? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? Because <laughs> And I work at two, two different locations for that practice. I was like, it's Wednesday, isn't it? I'm supposed to be here. I said, no, 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 you're off. And then the next thought that I had was, oh, my God, what have I not turned up to? So I checked my emails, checked with my practice manager. There was no, nowhere else that I needed to be. And so I had a non-planned day off, which was awesome. I got so much other stuff done that was on my to-do list. I know, right? (laughs) They were like, do you want want to call some patients in? I was like, no, 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 no. Can't (laughs) plan future, Rebecca, an unplanned day off. (laughs) Yeah. And yourself, Rita, what was your highlight of the week? So my highlight this week, uh, I recently uh, finished my... Uh, RSCGP exams. Um, so I decided that I need to take up a new hobby. So I've started sewing and I yesterday finished sewing my first dress. So I'm pretty happy with that achievement. I've, I've got my dress on today and I'm pretty happy with how it looks. So yeah, that was, that's been my highlight of the week. Um, awesome. The, the tricky part there is the fabric, isn't it? Like finding a really nice fabric that you yeah, like. Yeah, well, Actually, I find that part really fun because it means I get to go to um, a couple of different fabric stores and have a feel of the fabric. Also, I like the idea of being able to choose the fabric that I want uh, rather than, you know, fabric that's already made into an outfit. And um, I'm a, a little bit on the tall side, not not too tall, but uh, it's nice to be able to make the dress the length that I want it to be, which is often a problem I find with clothing that I buy in stores. And equally, it's it's the opposite of fast fashion. In fact, it's very slow. It takes quite a while to make a dress. And uh, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed the process. So uh, looking forward to my next project. My highlight of the week was actually what I've done today. I've just come from the Psychology in Medical Educational Symposium, which was run at the University of New South Wales and was their inaugural symposium on the psychology or the teaching psychology to medical students and junior medical trainees. And it was having a look specifically, the stream I was involved in was the wellbeing and junior doctor stream. So having a look at what's currently done and what could be done better for well-being of junior doctors and there's some really exciting research in the works and that hopefully will be published soon by other people, not by myself, but really cool to hear what's happening at the moment. Can you give us a summary? Oh, so pro- Yeah, it was really good. So probably my favourite presentation was one by the Black Dog Institute and they've actually looked at some international research and then validated it within Australia and found that things that um, I looked at when I did my burnout research a while ago or two years ago now about it being much more systems focused than what the hospitals were agreeing that it was really is true. So they've really shown that 
there's a huge correlation between increased working hours and thoughts of suicide and um, evidence of burnout. And the actual system stuff that I think is hard to change but really important to change, they've finally got evidence in Australia that it's really important that we have a look at that as well. That's cool because that goes along with what another guest of ours was saying that she learnt when she went over to Stanford University and that was Bethan Richards. Remember how Bethan was saying that the they noticed that, we, that there was that huge systems component and in order to address that they needed to look at the governance structure of the organisation to support how they're actually going to how they're actually going to have a look at what the system problems are in order to address them specifically. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. And there was also just another thing, a really beautiful medical student who'd come all the way out from Thailand for this one-day symposium because she'd done this survey amongst a Thai medical student cohort about alcohol intake. And there was a direct correlation, which you would presume would be true, but she'd done the survey and done the research to show the more alcohol they drink, the poorer their performance as students were. Oh, that's fascinating. And so it was really interesting that a medical student had decided to take this on and had then flown all the way to Australia to present her findings too. It seems like a no-brainer mm. really, doesn't it? But Good on her for coming, or, or them for coming all the way over to Australia to present their findings. Amazing. Totally. So, Rita, I might handball over to you and get you, first of all, just to tell us a little bit about yourself and then maybe tell us what made you want to do research. Of course. So I'm an academic GP registrar uh, currently working in the University of Melbourne at the Department of General Practice there. So the academic uh, GP registrar position for people who who don't know is a really great opportunity that all GP registrars across Australia um, have the opportunity to spend time in in a university uh, as part of their extended skills training. Um, as a as a GP, and I know Beck, you also were an academic GP registrar, and I'm sure you also would advocate for the position as well. The great thing about the academic GP registrar position is that, as part of your training, you get to work clinically, but also get to somewhat dip your toes in, and if you want, dive in to academic primary care research, and that's what I'm currently currently doing. So I've completed successfully my FRACGP exams and working clinically in a um, outer a suburb um, outside of Melbourne called Bacchus Marsh. So I work there clinically two days a week um, and then spend the rest of my time in the Department of General Practice. Can you explain the acronyms? Triple APC and ERC because you, if, I think I said at the beginning, but you are the new chair for the ERC committee of the AAAPC as of their last AGM at their last conference. Yes, that's correct. So AAAPC is the Australasian Association for Academic Primary Care. And it's a really, really great organisation that brings together primary care researchers, multidisciplinary from Australia and New Zealand, and advocates for primary care research. Now, ECR stands for Early Career Researcher, of which I most definitely am, uh, given that I'm currently, as I said, an academic GP registrar. So as part of APC, uh, there are a number of subcommittees, and one of these is the 
Early Career Researcher Committee, which, as you explained, back, I have just become the chair of, which is super exciting. And um, I'm really looking forward to, to that position. Part of it is going to be further developing a, a mentorship program, which was started earlier this year. It's another acronym, uh, FACES, so the Friends Advancing Careers Through eBay Support. So as part of my role in the Early Career Researcher Committee, we'll be further developing that to help support early career researchers in primary care. And, and that's all encompassing. So, you know, that's including medical students, graduate research students, primary care physicians, and also other other disciplines who, who may be involved in, in primary care research as well. And that's actually what I really loved about the conference, the AAAPC conference, was that it brought all of those multidisciplinary people together who were interested in primary care and specifically primary care research. And admittedly, I was blown away and completely oblivious to the fact of how many other disciplines are involved in primary care research. And in hindsight, it now seems really obvious that they are. I think that's one of the, the benefits of being in, a, I guess, a larger um, primary care research unit is that there is lots of different researchers there. So people whose background is in statistics or in science, sociology, psychology, pharmacy, and they're all working together towards a common goal. And I think that's what we're doing in general practice in primary care. We're all working together towards a common common goal of, you know, our, our I guess our patient's health. And and that was a really nice thing that came across at that conference in in July. That you know there is this huge group of people, this community that are are working towards similar goals. And I think in medicine, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree with me that. Being part of a community, feeling part of a community is, is really important for our development as both clinicians, but also as researchers. Absolutely. And I think that we were talking to Beth Oliver about this last week or last podcast is actually that as a GP, you're much more isolated than other teams in medicine. And we actually operate very much at an individual with the patient level. And we forget or we often don't interact with all those other teams outside of our room. And she was saying how nice it was to do some palliative care med- medicine and be part of a team again. And I think that often it's important to seek out teams and like-minded people to be able to have that interconnectivity that you may not be able to get as a GP just seeing patients. Which is really interesting, isn't it? Because in general practices, we do work a lot in teams together, but we often talk about this idea that we're not working in a team together. And I think my reflection on that is that it's that we're not working in teams of doctors together. We may be working with our allied health practitioners and nurses together, but we often aren't working in doctor teams together. So it's that peer-to-peer teamwork that we probably miss. And that's where it you may not get it in your own practice if you have a special interest in an area. Say you might be interested in skin cancer, you might be interested in research, um, you might be interested in you know specific women's health procedural skills and therefore you feel like you're the only doctor that's doing that thing in the practice and you need to seek out that group that helps to support you in that way. Hmm, I, yeah, nice insight. I think, Rita, we were talking before we turned the podcast on about the fact that you have just well, probably not just, but have taken on the journey to do a PhD. 
and I was hoping you could talk to our listeners about why you decided to do a PhD, why you decided that would be your next steps, but also then after that perhaps how you get started in doing a PhD. Of course. And I think um, a lot of this, I guess, comes back to really wanting to get involved in, in primary care research because when I was and this may be similar for you guys, but when I was a medical student, I studied in Ireland and a lot of my first exposure to actually to medicine really was through GPs. And a lot of these GPs were really, you know, inspirational to me at that time. And, you know, they were clinically active, they were educating medical students like myself, and also patients, but they were also involved in research. And, I think that being your first exposure to uh, to medicine is, you know, it was really it's really influenced me in my in my decision making. And you know, the, the academic G, GP position appealed to me because it gave me that opportunity to to look at what would a career in in primary care research look like. How would one go about developing that? Because I think that maybe is a question that people often ask themselves. How how would how would I you know start getting involved with that? And I'll talk a little bit about that in further bit further. In terms of deciding to embark on on the I guess on the journey of starting a PhD, I've you know I've had some great support from my team in in the University of Melbourne and being being part of that unit I saw the work that these academic GPs are doing and um, how it's you know influencing patients on another level so I find that when we're in clinic a little bit like what we spoke about earlier we're talking potentially on a one-on-one basis with with our patients and with their families and in I guess in research maybe you can look at that on a broader level and ask ask questions on on a broader on a broader level coming back to what i said about my earlier i guess medical education i always thought it would be great to have a job with a lot of variety and both of you will agree that being a gp brings a lot of variety uh, into into your work no no two days are the same everyone is every day is different and the opportunity to do a phd you know further further enhances that the i guess the opportunity to um, add even more variety into into my my week and, and my career I guess a question that often comes up is you know after the academic GP registrar position what what should I what should I do next and I initially I wasn't sure you know what way I, I would continue because I've, I've really enjoyed the position and what way would I continue that continue that work and I thought you know maybe would I spend some time doing some teaching in the unit or continue doing some more research. And, you know, through some, I guess, discussions with my supervisor and given the fact that there were some, I guess, funding opportunities coming up, which is really, I guess, really crucial when it comes to primary care research, because I think that's a barrier to a lot of people potentially engaging in primary care research is the funding opportunities or, or their lack of. And I just felt like now was the right time for me to continue on with my career in in academic primary care. And and that was the reason why I've started to pursue 
commencing a PhD next year, which is is super exciting, but also nerve wracking at the same time. But the you know the question comes up with the academic TP registrars, and and the question came up at our last workshop. You know, when is the right time to start a PhD? And I think it's when you think the right you know the right time is for you. I'd be interested, Beck. You know, to you're a little bit further on on your journey than I am, and I'd be interested to to know what you you think about that. I'm a little bit further on, but not a lot further on. I guess I'm. I think two years ahead of, I did mine two years ago, my academic registrar term. And I absolutely agree with you. There's no good time to do a PhD um, or no perfect time to do a PhD. You've really got to look at the time commitments needed and the compromise on everything else that's needed and then decide that you have that capacity and that space in your life right now. And I actually do think that after you've finished your exam and have had all of that pressure to do your exam and get past it, then taking a little bit of time to actually think about what you want to do is important before jumping straight into it. So I don't know if I'd necessarily recommend going from one all-time consuming task to another all-time consuming task. But lots of the people I talk to have come to a PhD later in their careers and have said that it wasn't until they actually had worked out what facet of GP it was that they then knew what research topic they wanted to look at. For me, it was an opportunity. So I had a wonderful supervisor as part of the registrar term already and they were wonderfully encouraging and I was at a time of my life where I thought I could commit as much as I wanted to. In saying that, and I don't want to put you off, I think I also grossly underestimated um, how much work it was and how time-consuming it would be. And it probably wasn't a gross underestimation, but it was. um, it takes a long time and everything moves really slowly. And that's okay. It's just I have to keep telling myself that that's okay. I don't know if I really answered the question. (laughs) I think both of you have raised some really interesting barriers to GPs in research. One is the funding, two is the time, and three is probably the financial component. You know, when when you look at the difference between doing regular general practice and general practice research, there is more time, you know, probably not within the hours that you would normally work and there's a little bit less remuneration and there may not always be the funding support. I don't know what it's like on the other side doing the research, but so I'd be interested to hear from you both about how you've managed to get around those barriers or how you're working with those barriers at this stage. Absolutely. Ashley, I think it's I think it is a, a real problem, uh, I guess a real barrier that we are seeing, especially with a group of academic GP registrars that I'm working with at the moment. So there's 20 of us all across Australia and we're all obviously interested in primary care research because we're working in that space right now and many people have said you know they would like to continue continue on working in that in that space but it's weighing up those those things that you spoke about like the the time and the financial aspects and I think part of that as well is you know you have to really be passionate about what you're going to what you're going to do your research in and also I think you have to be a little bit like what Beck said, a lot of it is about opportunity and about looking for those opportunities. And if you feel like it's the right time, you know, for you to, you know, pull back maybe on some clinical work and spend some more time doing research, 
then you know maybe maybe that's the right thing to do i think it's a very i think it's a very personal personal thing um i do think that in terms of getting it, getting involved in in primary care research is there's lots of ways that you can be involved in primary care research without working in an academic you know an academic unit and i guess one of those ways is you know by you know getting actually involved with research because a lot of the research that's happening is about, you know, is, is you know, is with GPs, is, is in primary care. So if there is, you know, a practice-based research network in the, in the area that you're working in, contacting them, getting involved with the studies that are actually happening, you know, whether it's recruiting patients or whether, you know, it's you being involved in a co-design of a project or being interviewed as part of, you know, a qualitative study. I think that's a really great way to to start getting involved in primary care research and and feel part of that community and feel like you are kind of contributing to to that knowledge as well. I agree and that's without having to commit to the big time commitment as well. That's a nice way to make contacts, extend your network of people that you know and know are involved in things and also then decide whether or not this is something that you're interested in, as well as being able to see what projects are on the go and what they're currently looking at within that team and then go from there. So I think, Ash, you also asked about funding and funding is, I just want to say, is actually really difficult and becoming more difficult. And I guess my approach has been to be genuine and apply for things that I think grants or submissions I would be a good fit for and really apply for lots but still I've got nothing and I'm happy with that I think they've gone to people who have had bigger or better or more interesting projects for what's been approved at the time and it is very difficult to get certain topics funded but where some people have said to me it's okay you're a doctor you'll just be able to get funding and you'll be doing paid research it's not actually the case there's less and less funding to go around and they're very very competitive funding grants so just saying that you will be able to get funding to do research that you want is definitely not true and is that funding for your time or the actual processes in the project or both Yes, yeah, so it's for the actual project. So as part of the project, you would usually fund your time as a component of it, which would then mean that you would be lucky enough to be paid for doing the research that you're doing. But otherwise, the research is unpaid. And my research that I was doing as part of my PhD last year was unpaid. And as of recently this year, I've now taken on a part-time senior lecturer position. So a component of my job includes research time. So for the first time, I've actually got time that I am paid to do my research, but that's through a university position rather than through a grant and that doesn't fund the project that just funds my time yeah okay so your time to apply for grants to get funding to do your project yes that's complicated (laughs) (laughs) it's it's very complicated absolutely beck and i think the situation that you are describing is a situation that a lot of of early career researchers are in and hopefully is part of the APC committee we can address and talk about some some of those issues um, you know at, at a greater a greater level well I think just to have someone else who's in the same position as you at the time and 
be able to say that's okay, like we're all in this together and it's okay and we will get through it and we'll get past it and we'll all finish our PhDs. As far as the balance, I decided that if my family was able to survive on a GP registrar wage, then that was actually a really good opportunity to survive on a reduced clinical wage rather than jumping into full-time general practice and then cutting back to do a PhD. So that was a conscious decision knowing that I'd be earning less committing time to a PhD, but that was actually a good opportunity to do it then rather than to have earned more initially and then to have dropped back on my clinical hours. I completely, I completely agree with you, Beck. And I think there is, I think it is a challenge that we're facing as we you know, enter, I guess, enter this world is that also we are trying to balance our clinical work which we are still developing as well with the with the primary care research as well. So it's it's a bit of a bit of a juggling act, but I think as as GPs we're pretty good at that and we're pretty good at doing that in short periods of time. So I think it's something that we, we just I guess have to try and manage continuously developing our clinical clinical skills as well. While we're talking about research, I would actually like to know a bit more about your research, Rita, and what you're doing and what you're hoping to get out of your academic registrar year and then also for your PhD. So my academic GP registrar position, which I should mention is also funded by the Australian GP training program, is it's mainly a quantitative study um, looking at continuous glucose monitoring usage in primary care. So it's part of a bigger project which happened in the University of Melbourne and specifically looking at how those patients who use continuous glucose monitoring accessed GP care. So one of the really great things about being involved in this project is that it's quite a big project. So you've got this big team around you who can can help support you because as I said, I'm really early on in my in my research career. So I think you'll agree with me back is that you need all the support that you can get when it comes to developing your skills. And the academic GP registrar position has been really good for that in terms of that. I've learned a lot about statistics, which I previously didn't know, presenting skills, you know, critical thinking, which has been really awesome. I guess my interest in type 2 diabetes came from when I was a resident in the hospital. When I was a resident in the hospital, I did a lot of medical specialties. So jobs such as endocrinology, neurology, renal medicine, cardiology. And when I was doing that work, I was continuously seeing patients who, you know, had complications from diabetes. And that kind of spurred my interest in, you know, how could we you know, potentially better manage this diabetes in the community and I guess stop, you know, hopefully um, the progression to that stage. I was also interested in this this project because I've got a parent who's a computer scientist and from a very young age was always surrounded by lots of technology and uh, continuous glucose monitoring is obviously very new technology, which we currently don't use in, in type 2 diabetes and and that was another reason as to why I was interested in that project. And that's will continue through um, with my PhD, which is in the very early planning stages. But I'm hoping to do like a mixed method research, kind of investigating um, how we, you know, 
diagnose early type 2 diabetes in the community um, and how we could can optimize that as well. So as I said, it's it's very much in the early planning stages, but I'm, I'm hoping that by doing this research, I will learn more about different research methods, particularly about qualitative research. As I said, the moment my, my research is mainly quantitative and also, you know, that it will add and contribute to the, I guess, the evidence that we have about, you know, how primary care, um, you know, is, is really at the forefront in, in the early prevention and management of these chronic diseases, which we're seeing um, so frequently in the community at the moment. I would love to see continuous glucose monitoring for patients with restrictive eating disorders. It's been something that has come across my clinical table and I've gone, oh, continuous glucose monitoring here would be really, 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 really useful. And I love that you're doing more work in trying to increase the availability or looking at increasing the the uses of it within general practice because I think there's so many clinical circumstances that would be not not just in the in the diabetes model but other clinical circumstances where it could be really useful as well. Absolutely. And I think I think that raises a really big point, Ashley, is that a lot of, you know, whether it's medications or new technology, a lot of them, you know, is developed and, and trialed in a hospital setting. But we know that that's not where most of the care takes place. Most of the care is, is taking place in our rooms in primary care. And that's why it's important that we are conducting this research so that we're generating this evidence for, for these, um, these technologies in primary care rather than, like I said, in the secondary or tertiary levels. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like an incredible project and one that will be both well-supported and worthwhile doing, which has all the keys for a successful project. I think that's a nice opportunity for us to move into our resource of the week. And I think I'll get started with one that my PhD supervisor gave me this week, Professor Andrew Bonney from the University of Wollongong. And I was complaining to him about how my PhD or my clinical work was starting to creep on each other and I wasn't having a really clear delineation between the time that I was assigning for my clinical time and for my PhD time and everything was kind of creeping into one another and I wasn't getting a good chunk of time to do anything that I wanted to get done and he recommended a book called Inbox Zen uh, talking about emails and it goes through a process of how to manage your emails so that they don't become the all-encompassing part of your life that you're checking constantly. And it's a really short book. It's only about 50 pages and you can get it as an ebook. And it just talks through a method of how to manage your emails so that they don't manage you. And it's absolutely worthwhile. Sounds like I need that book. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember ages ago I said one of my resources was Inbox by Gmail and it had changed my life? <laughs> so that, that was a really good program because it allowed you to do the sort of stuff that's in that kind of book. And then Google, like, decommissioned really? it. Really? <laughs> so I was like, yeah. Anyway, so I've had to kind of figure out how to do something similar in a different way. But, yeah, totally, totally worthwhile. Yeah. And I, I one of the things I think is having automatic filters is really useful mm -hmm. just because it helps to to you know put all your promotions and updates and everything all in one one spot and then you don't have to, to worry about that there's something important ash what's your pill well i recently found a 
website called preventallergies.org.au and it's about for it's for parents and it's about how to introduce potentially allergenic foods to a child who's not yet allergic to foods and so it, it is this concept of we'd like to introduce it before they turn one and so at around that six months of age how to start introducing foods that have previously been documented as being allergenic foods and it's quite parent friendly and it's got some information there about how to identify allergic reactions and what is eczema and some helpful tools and food ideas and some frequently asked questions and bits and bobs around allergies and it's much more user-friendly than the ACA website which is the Australian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy websites so it's a good kind of resource for for parents. That sounds like an awesome website I'm definitely gonna gonna use that in clinical practice. Mm. And yours Rita what was your pearl? Yes so last week I attended a, a intrauterine contraceptive device insertion course which was really awesome but um, as part of that maybe you guys up in New South Wales are already using this resource but it was um, the New South Wales family planning website have a lot of patient patient information fact sheets which I really like the look of they're really user-friendly and pretty much cover the full spectrum of reproductive and sexual health information sheets for the patient and what I really like about it is that it's not Uh, sponsored by any drug companies which I think is quite important when we're giving resources to patients and yeah I thought that was really really useful resource which I'm going to use in clinical practice. Yeah it's great and they're particularly good if you're not quite sure about something like uh, emergency contraception you know it's good to kind of update yourself about the different types of emergency contraception that you can use just by looking at the fact sheet and you know what you need to remember and things like that as well so I find them good for clinicians to to get a bit of an update about what's what's current at the moment absolutely or if you've completely forgotten I can go and print them off and go through them with the patient and we can learn together that's a good idea (laughs) classic strategy classic strategy you're you're leaking all the secrets Um, that brings us to the end of another podcast. Thank you so much, Rita, for coming along and talking to us. Um, if anyone has any questions about the early career researching or the APC, we'll pop the web links in the show notes and I'm sure they would be more than happy to get contacted. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Rita.